Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. (laughs) From the third floor of the HC building in the Bethel University Library, it's election shock therapy. Did you have to write down our location? I actually okay. made sure that I didn't say one of the other podcasts we okay. do. Uh, who's here with me? Uh, Sam Mulberry. Uh, Chris Garrett. And Andy Ramson. And a live studio audience. Hey, everybody. Thanks, How do we guys. know they're here? They should applaud, there right? There we go. Okay. Uh, since we have a live studio audience, we're going to do things just a slightly differently today. So uh, um, we have a couple folks here who have uh, note cards and they're happy to pass those out to everybody who's here. If you have questions for us, we're gonna try and keep our comments brief, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. So feel free to jot one of those, uh, uh, jot a question down on one of those cards, pass it back uh, to these fine gentlemen, and um, we'll, we'll get to a few of those. If you're not here in our live audience, or if you're hearing this on recording, uh, feel free to email us. You can always email us at the podcast at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, gentlemen, um, it's a, uh, it's a busy week, but um, we're, we're actually three days late. I, uh, we're, we're, we're celebrating Constitution Day on the 17th. Um, did, did James Madison bring you all the amendments that you wanted? Yes, yes. It was pretty good. I'm sorry, was that political science humor? Uh, barely. Okay. Barely. Just barely. Um, no, this is uh, um, Constitution Day is a relatively new holiday, so we're still trying to make fetch happen here. Uh, it really actually coincides with that movie pretty closely mm-hmm. because uh, Constitution Day came about in 2004. It was an amendment to a federal spending bill uh, offered by Senator Robert Byrd, the longtime serving senator from West Virginia and big constitutional history buff, who put a provision in the federal spending bill in 2004 that any school that, or higher education institution that receives federal funding must also recognize the history and glory of the U.S. Constitution. And there's no real enforcement penalty for that provision. <laughs> so if a school just blatantly refused to recognize the Constitution, I'm not sure what happens to them. Drone strike, I, I imagine. But we um, are now compliant. But we, are, we have we decided are here at the university to be extra compliant on this issue. And so we have, uh, since in my entire time that I've been here, we've been celebrating Constitution Day. And uh, today's uh, podcast on impeachment is our recognition of one of the uh, important but often misunderstood clauses inside the Constitution. So I thought we'd start today with uh, uh, looking to both Professors Bramson and Garrett and talking about, first, what does the Constitution actually say about the function of impeachment? Do we want to pull this up on the screen? We actually have a slide for the folks who are here live, and uh, we're going to reference directly the... um, there are two provisions in the U.S. Constitution that deal most directly with removal um, of, a, uh, of, a, of a constitutionally um, appointed officer, um, but specifically the, um, the Article 2, Section 4, your first page there. There we go. It's very short, and it says the following. In Article 2, or Article 2 of the Constitution, Section 4, the President, Vice President, and all civil officers in the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. 
Is this what we think about when we think about impeachment? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things you, to talk about here. One is that, that obviously there's a kind of range of standards. I mean, so treason is the kind of extreme version, right? Where you have the president of the United States who's supposed to be the leader of our country um, actually betraying us in some way, you know, presumably to a foreign power, right? Um, and that would be, you know, I think people would agree on that, um, that if that happened, right, you need to get rid of the president and replace this person with somebody else, right? Um, where it gets trickier is understanding that sort of high crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, what, what do we mean by that? And I think particularly thinking about what did the founders mean by that. And so I think that's, when we think about sort of how to, how to think about impeachment, um, that's where it gets tricky. Bribery is also a little more straightforward if the president is accepting payoffs to do things that are against the country's interests or for his own uh, personal gain, then that would also be a, a legitimate case for impeachment. So am I, am I supposed to give some history at this sure, point? Sure, love it, since you are I, the historian. I should make clear, my main credentials for being here are that I'm breathing. <laughs> I actually was free at 11.15 on Thursday. <laughs> Unlike Mitchell Crum. Uh, I'm able to use Google search, and I, <laughs> and I own and can wear a plaid shirt, apparently. Yes, good, that was so, yes. I, I am I am Mitchell yeah. Crum of the political science department. You're for taller. Playing the role. I'm, Mitch. Yeah, you didn't quite tall. work. No, so I, it, I am a European historian, so I will start with Europe, which is, this all originates with English law, right? Mm -hmm. and so yes, right. yeah, absolutely. At least as far as Wikipedia tells me, this goes back to the 14th, 14th century or so. So, I mean, like much of the Constitution, it's in the Anglo-American tradition. I mean, I think the place to start here is this does come up in 1787. Mm -hmm. It's been part of state constitutions in the 1780s. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with the executive branch. And so we probably want to come back and talk about that branch, the checks and balances on it. But in a sense, here's the break. So English law has had this provision for 400 some years that you can impeach royal officials. And in fact, as the Constitutional Convention was happening, there was a protracted impeachment trial in the British Parliament of the Governor General of India. Hmm. It goes on for several, so it's very much in the air. On what grounds? Uh, you have now exceeded my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> please, please do not ask any follow-up questions. <laughs> So it's very much, and along with that, the notion of high crimes and misdemeanors, which yeah. this is the source for that phrase. Um, but the difference is that while you can impeach royal officials, there's no way to impeach the actual head of state in the British Constitution. Correct. I mean, there are extraordinary ways of removing the British monarch <laughs> Glorious and, and his head, um, right. if necessary, but there's no way actually to impeach him. This is why anytime the constitutional monarch defies the constitution there's a crisis right mm -hmm. there's no way parliament can remove the the king or the queen um and on the other hand one solution to that is you don't have an executive right which is the articles mm -hmm. of confederation solution you have a legislative kind of government and that was mm -hmm. failing mm -hmm. and so one of the chief advocates of impeachment then uh me includes ben franklin madison advocates for this but alexander hamilton mm -hmm. not surprisingly aham uh thinks that this a is a wonderful a dot ham <laughs> i was listening okay. to the soundtrack for like the 450th time on the way in this morning <laughs> i will not sing for you but as part of his preparation for this event. so hamilton wants a strong executive right uh and and makes the argument that you can only have a strong executive if it's a responsible executive and so famously this is in federalist 65 and 66 and this is where he addresses impeachment most, uh, most clearly. And so he's trying to say, in a sense, like if you're worried about having this executive, well, here is a check on that person's power or that branch's power. And so at the beginning of Federalist 65, he makes clear that impeachment, in his mind, is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained. Mm -hmm. right? this, this seems like an extreme step, but a necessary one. 
And so we can maybe talk more about what would necessitate impeachment, but to mm -hmm. him, the broad spirit here is any offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. Right. And so in a sense, like this is a popular argument with advocates of a strong executive, and in a sense mm -hmm. it also plays to people who are worried about the power of the executive because it mm -hmm. gives one or two other branches a chance to check. Um, the only real debate for Hamilton in 65 is who actually is doing the impeachment. And it ends up being the House impeaches, the Senate is, conducts the trial, but there is a suggestion maybe the Supreme Court should conduct the trial, and he rejects that for reasons we can come back to. Mm -hmm. So all I to say, there's some debate. There's a proposal to remove it at some point in the convention. It's voted down eight to two. And so there doesn't seem like there's a lot of argument about impeachment as a principle. It's more how do you implement it. So, I mean, the early cases have nothing to do with the presidency. So mm -hmm. the very first case is uh, in 1798 to 99. There's a senator from Tennessee named William Blount, who's a land speculator, and apparently has been conspiring with the British to grab part of what is then Spanish Louisiana. And this comes to light, and he's impeached by the House, and the Senate then tries him. But the Senate decides it doesn't have the jurisdiction to try one of its own. And so this is one of the early things they're working through, is who actually can be impeached. And this is the one and last time that a member of the US Congress is impeached. And from this point on, there are other solutions for corrupt congressmen or senators. And here and I will interject and say that it is odd for a legislative body, particularly the Senate, to make a decision that it doesn't have standing on an issue when it could choose to have standing. They could. Um, I mean, they do remove him. I think he's censured or he's right. forced to resign. Yeah. So there, I mean, one thing we should talk about later is alternatives to impeachment, mm -hmm. since it is right. so rare. Um, so the next case is then the most common case, which is about five years after this, a federal judge, I think in New Hampshire, named Pickering, is impeached and actually removed from office. So of the like 20 or so cases of federal impeachment, almost all have been judges of some sort, but I think we've had 15. Mm -hmm. um, so most recently in 2010, a federal judge in Louisiana named Thomas Porteous was impeached unanimously by the House and then the Senate on all four counts removed him, mostly for falsifying financial disclosure and then lying about it. So it, was, it fit the bribery standard pretty well. Um, in 1805, there was an attempt to impeach a chief, uh, justice of the Supreme Court, Samuel Chase. Mm -hmm. And it seems pretty clear this is part of the heated politics of the Federalist versus Democratic Republican days. Um, but the Senate, presided over by A. Burr, um, <laughs> actually voted, uh, declines to remove him. He's, he's actually acquitted by the Senate. Um, there's one other attempt to impeach a Supreme Court justice. Was that a, was that a politically later. motivated uh, split between the House and the Senate? That's, yeah, they're both controlled by the Democratic Republicans, but this is an early check then on the Senate is supposed to be this more cautious, deliberative body. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, an early concern is, I mean, will this just hold the executive or judicial branches hostage to two thirds of the Senate? It seems like maybe the Senate can rise above partisan politics. Politics is, is a message that comes out of that. So there, there are later cases. Inspiring message. Well, you know, it's possible. <laughs> um, so there are later cases, but I've talked long enough. I mean, I think the famous cases are the presidential cases. Right. We'll let uh, Professor Bramson talk yeah, about. Yeah, and let me just highlight a couple things that um, Professor Gerritz is saying here, too, I think that are important. I mean, one is you do get the sense when you think back to kind of how the founders are thinking about impeachment that they are not necessarily um, wanting to have quite the kind of standard that we've, we've, I think, established today, in particular for the presidency, right? They are thinking about this as something that is, in fact, pretty likely to happen, right? So, I mean, sure, you have these extraordinary cases of treason, um, but you, you, know, might, you might have cases where the person is acting in ways unbecoming to the office that is in some way violating, for example, 
um, their powers, right, that is assuming powers that are given to Congress or to the judiciary onto the presidency, and that these could, in fact, theoretically be grounds for impeachment, right? Um, which I think when you look at the presidential cases um, is not really how we've understood it, right? So we've only impeached a president twice, and we should make a, another little clarification here um, that impeaching the president happens when the House votes by, with a majority um, that the president should be impeached, right? At that point, we say the president has been impeached. The president has not, at that point, been removed from office. The president's only impeached and removed from office if the House votes for a majority to impeach him, and then the Senate, by a two-thirds majority, votes to remove him. Um, and so we've twice impeached the president, Andrew Johnson, 1868, and Bill Clinton in 1998, um, but we have never had the Senate actually remove the president from office. Mm -hmm. And both those cases are kind of interesting. I mean, the Johnson one, um, I think there is some real case that Johnson had abused the power of his office, that he was in many ways, you know, obstructing the functioning of government. Um, he was almost certainly innocent of the particular impeachment charge they brought against him. It was a law that was actually the year afterwards determined by the Supreme Court to be unconstitutional, right? So they were trying to impeach him because he had violated a law that violated the Constitution, right, essentially. Um, and so ultimately the House impeaches him and the Senate by one vote decides not to convict him. So 36 senators voted to convict him, or 35, and 19 voted to acquit him, and that was just enough. If one senator had flipped, um, he's gone, right? So that he barely survived. Bill Clinton's was different in the sense that it was um, certainly motivated by politics as Johnson's was. They both were very political processes, um, but his was for lying under oath, essentially, right? And the idea that this is, in fact, a high crime and misdemeanor. President shouldn't lie under oath. Um, Clinton wanted to argue I didn't really lie under oath. I just sort of fudged more. Um, and, and so he was acquitted largely on a party line vote. Um, he didn't come very close. He got impeached by the House on a pretty close vote. Doesn't come anywhere close to getting convicted in the Senate. The other prominent case people think of, and I'm, I'm bringing my Richard Nixon mug here today. Can we just um, point out that you yeah. uh, that you have a collection of presidential library I mugs? Do. Come by my office. Um, and you use them like a mood ring. Um, <laughs> so I can tell how Bramson's feeling when he walks in my office and if he's got the Kennedy mug or the Ford mug. Like it's like a, it's the a Hoover thing. mug is the Hoover mug is really like bad, bad news. Watch out. The Hoover mug, I don't feel but, good about. But um, he's he's dusted off the Nixon mug for our impeachment talk That's here. Right. Very this, apropos. This is the Nixon mug. So the Nixon Nixon is the one we think of with impeachment a lot of times because of course Nixon's the one we probably would have impeached, except that he resigned um, to get out of this. And so the House was about to vote articles of impeachment. The Senate had gone essentially sent the Republican leadership to Nixon and informed him like you have zero real chance of surviving this vote in the Senate, and it would be wise if you moved along, right? And so he, um, he in fact, did that, so he resigned to avoid being impeached. Um, so those are the kind of big cases of presidential. Yeah. Can I just interject? So like, if you want to learn more about this, one really interesting resource yeah. that I came across is in 1974, the House Judiciary Committee, or I assume their staff, actually produced a kind of historical legal analysis of impeachment. Mm -hmm. They got published, and then during the Clinton impeachment, the Washington Post reposted this online. You can kind of page by page flip through that report, mm -hmm. which I think was really helpful for me, certainly. Yeah, um, another resource is um, uh, kind of a colleague of ours from in town mm -hmm. here. I don't know if you want to talk about Mike Paul. Yeah, so um, when I, we were preparing for this podcast, uh, Professor Ritchie from English sent me a series of posts um, by Michael Paulson, who teaches at St. Thomas Law and actually adjuncted for us here at one point. Um, and he's got an interesting series of articles on impeachment that are actually ongoing, so he's still in the middle of writing these. Um, at the, I think it's on the Liberty Fund site. I can send you the link if anyone wants it. Um, but it's really interesting to kind of walk through sort of some of the things we'll, we've we'll been talking about. We'll attach it to this podcast, too. Can, great. See, there you go. We can do that. And I think Mike's argument is interesting because he he's trying to go back to the original intent, right, and the meaning mm -hmm. of the words mm -hmm. like high crimes and misdemeanors he has a post right. on. But he would argue we should be doing this much more often right. than we do, right? And so I don't know right. if that's maybe one of the things we want to talk about is mm -hmm. 
you know, either his case or why we haven't done it as often as, as we have. I do want to talk about that. I want to just underscore something that Bramson was talking about, though, which is uh, something that Aham, you going with Aham? <laughs> sure, fine, um, uh, says in Federalist uh, 65. Of course, the, the actual text of the Constitution says, um, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. So it leaves some, it, it gives some specifics, things like treason, things like bribery, though definitions of bribery have changed over time too, and other crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors. But what, um, what Aham says uh, in Federalist uh, 65 is the sentence after the one that Professor Geertz quoted. In other words, from abuse or violation of some public trust, they are of a nature which may be peculiarly propri uh, pr uh, propriety, be denominated political, as they related chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. And I draw this uh, inference that this is not specifically a legal process. I'm, I'm on mic now? All right. Um, it's not specifically a, a legal process, it's a political process. It's a political process that results from, a, from, a, um, from a potentially legal affairs, but there isn't a specific legal standard for impeachment. And that's one of the misconceptions that I've heard in the recent round of news about um, the, uh, the, the Mueller investigation into Donald Trump and whether uh, specific crimes were committed, even refutations of the, uh, by the president himself on Twitter, as oh. is the way to do things these days, uh, that uh, um, even if there, that e there was no collusion, and even if there was collusion, collusion's not a crime. And that may or may not be true, but that's not the point of impeachment. Impeachment is not about whether a specific crime was committed, but the political result after a specific crime has been committed. In fact, it could yeah. be a follow-up. I mean, one of Hamilton's arguments in 65 is you shouldn't let the Supreme Court try these cases because there might be a subsequent criminal case that would come to the Supreme Court, but these don't have to be crimes, right? So the high crimes and misdemeanors allows room beyond strictly criminal offenses. Mm -hmm. So that's <clears throat> that said, um, let's... Let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the politics of this. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I have for the two of you, um, both for, as a historian, as a political scientist, is there a problem with breaking the impeachment seal? Uh, if we, as um, Paulson suggests perhaps, make more use of impeachment as a tool for removing um, uh, malfeasant executives mm -hmm. or malfeasant uh, um, public officers, is there a danger that the president becomes... Um, hostage to two-thirds of the Senate. Is there a danger that uh, impeachment becomes overused in American public life? I mean, there's, there's another kind of danger. So the, the next line in Federalist 65 that I didn't have room for, but Hamilton warns, even though he thinks this is necessary and good, will make for a responsible, powerful executive, he warns this will inevitably inflame passions. Mm -hmm. I mean, he said mm -hmm. this will naturally attach to existing affections or create new affections and will create factions and divide you know, an already fragile republic, right? I mean, so right. this is a concern. He's going to make the argument, but he says mm -hmm. this is a political event, and he can see how it becomes then a partisan event. So sure. I mean, like, I think that, you know, obviously we can imagine what that looks like in 2018, but it's it's been there since the beginning in that sense. Yeah, and, and we don't, I mean, we even really have to imagine, right? We can just sort of look at the way people talk about this, and, and you see, I mean, these kind of sort of partisan passions, who's, who's going to push for impeachment? I mean, the early pushes are always coming from, you know, sort of the, the party that's not the president's party, right? Um, and, you know, I think we were, we were talking about this the other day, I mean, like, 
every president in the last few decades, right, has at some point had somebody in the House suggest that he should be impeached and has actually sort of filed preliminary paperwork. Most of that's gone nowhere, right? But, but there's been that conversation, right? And so it does. And, and when the president does become controversial, as you had with, you know, Nixon in the 70s, Reagan with um, sort of the Iran-Contra in the 80s, um, Clinton in the 90s, now more recently um, President Trump, right? It's, you know, it really does inflame those passions. So I think you see that concern. I think I would answer your question, though, um, Chris Moore, um, that um, no, I don't think I'm really worried about that problem of sort of impeachment getting out of control. And you think about it in comparison to another form of, govern of democratic governance, which is parliamentary government. In parliamentary government, right, to get anything done, you have to be able to pass things through parliament. The prime minister usually is the name of the head of government. That person's power comes from parliament, and that person can be removed if a majority of parliament no longer supports him or her, right? And, and that happens, right? It's called a vote of no confidence. And, you know, in our, our system, the way impeachment is structured, right, you would have to have two-thirds of the Senate um, voting you out, which it's been a while since either party's had a two-thirds majority in the Senate, right? So this is very improbable. You have to have people from your own party, usually a significant number of people from your own party, who are saying you're no longer doing a good job, right? So I think our danger That's what Nixon is, faced. Right, that's what Nixon ultimately faced, because it, you know, the, the sort of level of high crimes and misdemeanors had gotten so great that his own party started saying, this is a mess, this is a disaster. And I think the other factor we should throw in here, I mean, this is a political process, right, is it matters how the president's numbers are going, right? So that when the numbers start tanking, and that's what was happening to Nixon in the 70s, right, it becomes too expensive um, for his party to continue supporting him, right? So when people ask about, you know, what's going to lead to impeachment, it's less about, I think, the, the particular legal issues and more about what do you think, right, as the population? Um, do you still support this president if you voted for him or her, right, or are you backing off, right? And if enough of the president's supporters leave the president um, and start saying, I don't support this person anymore, um, that makes that person more vulnerable, right? So I think, you know, actually in many ways it would be useful for us to use this as a check on power more than we have. Um, I think we have too high a bar. The fact that we've gone 230 years without impeaching presidents, and we can name several we haven't talked about um, who we could have made a very good case um, for impeaching, right? They were not able to use their office well. I mean, you think about people like James Buchanan on the eve of, you know, the Civil War, right? I mean, this is, you know, he's, he's not governing, he's not doing anything about it, and he just sits there in office, right? Um, there's a very good case that you should, you know, get him out and put somebody else in, right? But, again, our system makes it, makes it hard to do that, both with the high bar in the Senate and also because, there's only one successor, right? Um, that's the vice president, right? So in the case of Buchanan, for example, one of the reasons you don't want to impeach him is his vice president is a pro-Confederacy Southerner who's actually going to go with the Confederacy, right? So that also makes it complicated. So Andy, mm -hmm. to really, since you're a comparative expert here, like mm -hmm. how common is impeachment in other types? I mean, like even presidential democracies. So mm -hmm. like yeah. immediately after this, I'm talking about the Korean War with my right. Cold War class. We have the Korean right. summit going. The president of South Korea came to power after an impeachment in 2016. Mm -hmm. Is that is that still relatively unusual, or does this actually happen more often in certain systems? More, more often than ours, for sure. Um, and one of the places I'm most familiar with this happening is in Latin America. Um, so in Latin America, to kind of give a very brief kind of regime history, right, uh, they had a lot of military coups in the 60s and 70s in particular, and even before that. Um, so you're removing governments that aren't functioning well through kind of non-constitutional means or anti-constitutional means. Um, and so when they return to democracy in the 80s as the Cold War is drawing to its close, right, it's one of the big factors, um, they, they still have this problem of, you know, regime crisis. I mean, presidents who can't function, they don't have party support, they get involved in really big controversies, right, uh, all sorts of reasons, right. And so one of the things they have to think about is how do we solve these regime crises, right? In the old days, 
you basically, you know, subtly encourage the military, like, come on in, um, take over, and get get rid of this president who can't function. In the Democratic era, one of the things they've done is remove the president by impeachment, right? And we just saw this um, earlier this year, actually, with Brazil, right? I mean, they they just or last year, I guess it was, they removed um, their president through this process, right? But there've been a number of those cases um, in Latin America where you've seen that. So it's one not of the things South that. Korea international relations and comparativists talk about is rule of law and the strength mm -hmm. of rule of mm -hmm. law. So wouldn't we, could we conclude that a transition from military coup d'etats to constitutional means of removal of power is a signaling that rule of law is strengthening in Latin America? Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge gain. And so that's when we think about impeachment in our own country. I mean, it would not harm rule of law. In fact, it would reinforce it, right? Because we often like to say the president is not above the law. But 200 and, you know, almost 230 years, we've never impeached a president. So I mean, maybe all of our presidents have conducted the office with such, with such rectitude that there's no reason to have removed any of them. But I'm a little skeptical of that explanation. So could that theoretically be because, I'm sorry. To That's fine. Here, I mean, I, I'm really interested in the notion, maybe this hap hasn't happened because we had at the beginning or we've developed alternatives to impeachment. We found other means of addressing the, it's so no. like right at the beginning, the chief argument in the convention against this by Governor Morris was, we have a means, which is they only serve four years, then they stand right. for re-election, and the public right. removes them from office. So right. why go through this potentially fractious, agonizing process? We have term limits, right, in this sense. Right. That is the most clear, normal uh, means right. of right. removing an executive, is. is just voting them out of office. Right. But there are others. Mm -hmm. There are other ways. And one of the problems is, I mean, four years can be a long time if the president can't function, right? Or even two years can be a long time. I mean, I was struck by this both with both of our last two presidents, right, when they got to their, their second midterm, right, so President Bush in 2006, President Obama in 2014, right, that they, they lose big. I mean, they just get destroyed. The polls, their party loses its majority in Congress, right, so they don't have any, you know, they don't have a majority either the House or the Senate, and yet you're kind of stuck with them, right? So it's November of 2006, November of 2014, and you know it's like, you know, 27 months until that president leaves power, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Now, I'm not saying either of those presidents should have been impeached. I don't actually think either of them had done anything impeachment worthy, right? But, but it, it does suggest a problem in our system, right? That you basically, the government is now tied up in knots, can't really function um, until we, you know, get rid of either that president in power or the Congress, and of course we can't do that for two years, right? So that's, a, that's an issue. So before, uh, there are other means, and I just want to point mm -hmm. one out. Um, Bill Clinton, uh, rather than being removed from office as a result of his impeachment, was censured uh, mm -hmm. by Congress. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what uh, censure means? Slap Ow. on the hand, right? It's that. I mean, basically, you're slapping the president on the hand and saying that was bad. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, we disapprove of what you what you did, your behavior. Um, but there's no real consequence, right? I mean, it's not like there's anything. You know, you're not removing the power of the president. You're not really um, you're not really constraining the president in any significant way, unless the congressmen take it so seriously that they refuse to cooperate or something like that. Um, so I think censure is. I mean, it sounds good. It's something, but it's. I don't think it does a whole whole lot. Well, there's one other way, and just before we before I mention this, uh, um, if you have questions you'd like us to address, feel free to pass those to uh, to Zach and to Chase, and Sam's collecting those, and he's going to ask us a couple of them. Uh, but there is one other method that's also constitutional for the United States, and you've probably heard this within the last couple within the last year or so as well. It was a fairly pointed part of the. Uh, anonymous editorial that showed up in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, in pertaining to Donald Trump, and that was the 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment says this, in part, 
Whenever the vice president and majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. So there is a provision within the Constitution by virtue of the 25th Amendment that if a majority of the president's cabinet, as how principal officers has been determined, um, sign a letter which goes to the Speaker of the House and the, and the Leader of the Senate that the, uh, the President can't discharge their duties, that is a constitutional way of removing the President from power. And it's come up because uh, members inside the Trump administration, anonymously in one case, have alleged that at least whispered conversations about Donald Trump's fitness for office and capacity to be President were part of a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine on a, at a political level a majority of the president's cabinet uh, signing a letter saying he's incapacitated, but it is possible. And at least the original yeah. intent had more to do with physical incapacity. Right. So it right. starts with Dwight Eisenhower has, I think, heart issues in the right. 1950s. Could Richard Nixon have stepped in? Um, and then after the Kennedy assassination, you know, what right. if Kennedy had survived, but in a you know, much reduced state? I mean, this had happened, right? During, mm -hmm. Right after World War I, in the in the debate over the Treaty of Versailles, Woodrow Wilson suffers a crippling stroke, mm -hmm. and they take the train back from Colorado all the way to Washington. His doctor examines him like he is incapable of doing any presidential work. This is concealed. The vice president's not told. His wife governs as a kind of regent mm -hmm. for several months. Right? First female president. Exactly. It was, mm -hmm. a, it was a constitutional crisis we never knew about, and so. When this was adopted in the 1960s, I think that was more the proximate cause, but there are other kinds of incapacity as well. Right, right. It's, it's really, I mean, an, a, a problematic, I think, way to remove the president for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is it's really unlikely that you could get cabinet members to commit to this. It's really dangerous. I mean, you get to play this game one time because otherwise the president's going to presumably fire you, right, for declaring him to be incapacitated if he doesn't feel incapacitated. The other problem is, of course, that with the, this article or this this amendment goes on to say, right, is that this lasts, the vice president remains as acting president until such time as the president says, actually, I am capable of re resuming my office. Thank you. Um, and then he's supposed to be able to resume it. And then if they disagree about his capability, right, then it, there's like a sort of political process for that. It's a mess, right? So, I mean, this is a really messy way. I think, you know, if we were to think about, I mean, I think this is another case for lowering the bar for impeachment, right? And saying, if we're going to do this, it should come through the Congress, the elected representatives of the people, through the normal process. So it's very clear the president is gone, the vice president is in, right? If you, you would have a regime crisis if this was, I think, tried. Could I just mention one other? Um, so this happens in other countries. It happens at the state level, but does not happen federally, which is recall elections. Right. Mm -hmm. so right. This was actually proposed at the convention. It was part of the Virginia plan Interesting. and rejected. Yeah. Um, but it's, it showed up in state constitutions, especially with the progressive era. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a way to hold accountable officials. They wouldn't serve in perpetuity. Um, and so many states have this in their constitution. Mm -hmm. For example, in the Minnesota Constitution, uh, there is an article for impeachment that looks a lot like the federal. And then about 20 years ago, we added a section enabling recall elections. Mm -hmm. so that's section six. And so you have to meet a certain level to, to put this on the ballot. Um, and unlike some other states, you actually have to have the Supreme Court of Minnesota set criteria, which have to do with malfeasance or nonfeasance. Mm -hmm. In some states, you don't have any established criteria. It could just be unpopularity, failure to govern. So, for mm -hmm. example, Gray Davis was recalled right. in California during one of that state's many budget crises. So mm -hmm. that, it does, but it, you can't, we can't do this. If we don't like our president, our senator, mm -hmm. our congressperson, we cannot actually recall right. them at the federal level. Right. 
Well, gentlemen, we could, there's a lot more we could say, but uh, Sam has a pile of questions and a few of them that he's gonna want, wants to ask us. Sam, do you have a mic? I do. I okay, great. I, I think it. I'm Mike. Yeah. Um, so it, actually, this is a really interesting question I'd never thought about. Uh, when an official is impeached, how do they mount a defense? A private defense or a public defense? How is it paid for? Is it a public fund or a private fund? Can campaigns fund be used for impeachment um, defense? Hmm, that's a good question. I actually do not remember what the... I mean, they have private counsel. They have private counsel. No, but paid for. To, uh, if I recall from 1998, uh, I believe that um, there were private contributors to Bill Clinton's impeachment defense fund. So uh, it was not campaign funds, but it was also uh, privately solicited uh, contributions to his mm -hmm. defense fund. Okay. And I know they left, I mean, the Clintons you know, talked a lot about leaving office with a lot of debt, right? And so I think part of that did come from some of the, the legal defenses they had to mount, which wasn't just impeachment, of course. There were a number of other things. But right. um, yeah, so I would, I would suspect it's more private, but I don't actually know how that works. And, and the other the other part's much clearer. Uh, the president um, or whichever official is, is is impeached is responsible for privately uh, organizing their own defense. And uh, the, right. the people doing the defense of them are not uh, public officials. Right. Who? The prosecution is carried out by the House. Okay. Right? That so was they, my the question. The prosecution in the House impeaches the president, mm -hmm. um, and they then send certain members um, of the House to the Senate to basically serve as the advocates for the prosecution. And they're, known um, as, they're known as managers. So my former representative, I, I went to undergrad in South Carolina, my former representative, Lindsey Graham, who's now in the U.S. Senate, um, was one of the managers for um, the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 98, 99. How are, how are those people selected? Um, just by the, by the House. I mean, there's representatives of each party. So, mm -hmm. for example, last time there was a federal impeachment of this judge from Louisiana, um, the chief Democratic manager was Adam Schiff, who's congressman mm -hmm. from South, Southern California, who coincidentally has been a pretty um, vociferous critic of Donald Trump. But it's interesting. You can go on YouTube. It was, it was fascinating to watch his opening statement hmm. in this hearing, which we don't even think about, but right. a federal judge was removed. And he actually started with, why does this happen so rarely? And he said, well, partly we just have good judges, usually. Mm -hmm. Second, he said, we have effective confirmation processes that help weed out mm -hmm. candidates who otherwise we'd have to remove. Right. And then third, he, he vaguely alluded, like, it's just, it's hard for the House to do. Right. But, I mean, in that case, it was not hard for the right. House to do. In, in another where are they now uh, uh, point, one of the young lawyers um, assisting uh, the House prosecution in the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton was one young Brett Kavanaugh. I wonder what he's doing these days. I don't know. All right, next another, question. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sounds like I got enough of that. All right. Uh, so what makes uh, a high crime or misdemeanor? And how does this look differently from the standards for public at large? High crimes are just crimes committed at altitude, right? Yeah. And uh, you no, something like that. <laughs> Dad jokes. Dad jokes. What's a high crime, guys? Is a felony a high crime? <laughs> I think for sure a felony. Shooting someone on counts. Fifth Avenue. Yes. It's a high crime. Shooting someone on Fifth so Avenue definitely counts. Okay. I think the question is how low the bar goes for high crimes. Right? I think. I mean, there, like, if you committed a felony, that presumably would count as a high crime. We don't want a felon um, as president. But, but yeah, how, how high does it have to be? That's where we're, we're debating, right? I mean, this is where I, I think we've probably reached the limits of a week. No, this is where I actually would really encourage you to look up Mike Paulson's post, because right. he has a couple mm -hmm. specifically yeah. on this. Yeah. And I'll just summarize, say, he said this is drawn specifically from this British tradition. 
So the yeah. way this happened was in the convention, George Mason of Virginia had suggested, well, we shouldn't just have treason and perjury. Those make sense, but we need something else. He suggested maladministration should mm. be sufficient cause. You know, you're just mm. bad at doing your job. And that seems maybe um, problematic. And they retreated then to high crimes and misdemeanors seems mm. to be the historical process. So that's, mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't know if that helps us understand the phrase, yeah. but it does suggest this is not necessarily just what we think of as criminy, right. criminal felonies and misdemeanors. Right. High crimes are political crimes, in right. a sense, too, related to this violation of the public trust. Maybe it does right. include maladministration. Right. So there's some strategic ambiguity can, can here. I, can I piggyback another question onto this, which sure. kind of goes in the same direction? So this is back in 1998, Senator Lindsey Graham argued in favor of Clinton's impeachment as a means of, quote, cleansing the office, even mm -hmm. if no crime had technically occurred. Is this a legitimate way to interpret the constitutional provisions for impeachment? Well, that would get directly to what you were just saying, Chris. Right, the idea yeah. that a, a high crime could also be sort of political um, mismanagement mm -hmm. would, would then be a, um, a version of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I assume this is debated by constitutional scholars, but Mike's case, at least, is that it does not have to be a crime to right. be grounds for impeachment. Right. And I, I honestly don't know how much that's contested, but so, it yeah. makes some sense given mm -hmm. some of the frame, framer discussions. Right, I mean, to, and to Graham's point, I think, you know, what you'd be saying is then it's useful to reinforce this principle the president is not above the law um, and that that is good, right? This sort of the, one of the responses to that was actually from um, Robert Byrd, who we mentioned earlier, right? Who is a Democrat from West Virginia who basically, you know, at one point more or less said, like, I think the president did do what they said, right? He did, in fact, um, you know, lie under oath, right? Um, but he's doing a good job as president, right? And so I'm not going to vote to convict, right? I'm gonna vote to acquit him. Um, and so that, again, reinforces, I mean, this is a political decision, right? I mean, it's not all about your assessment of the merits of the legal case. It's also about what do you think is politically useful? Graham's saying, even if there wasn't a crime, it might be politically useful to say this president has been really dodgy about the truth and we need to show higher standards. And Grant Byrd is saying, even if he did technically commit a legal violation, we shouldn't convict him because he's done a good job for us politically. So those are two very different ways of thinking about you know, what should our standard be for impeachment? Well, and the other answer to it is the standard is whatever the Senate says it is. Right. Right. I mean, like, totally. there's no appeal. I mean, right. if you don't like Robert Byrd's there's rationale no there, there's no right. appeal of it. There's no right. way to recall him for doing that. Right. Thing. You have to convict. 67 senators have to want to convict. Right. right? Yeah. For various kinds of reasons. Right. right. Can I pay, Can I put Please on my do. hat? Because I really don't belong up here. I should be out there. But if I were out there, <laughs> one thing I would ask you to I wasn't to even is, supposed to be here today. One thing <laughs> I would ask you to is political science. Like, I get why Republicans, of course, are very leery to proceed with impeachment. That that's obvious. Yeah. It doesn't strike me that most Democrats are all that eager, at least mm -hmm. on this side of the midterms, to proceed. Like there is, on the progressive Quite wing, there is a very clear yeah, yeah. case being made, at least in social media, for impeachment. Right. I haven't heard a lot of congressional Democrats, you know, staking their, their um, political capital on that campaign. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, the op to the opposite, uh, two, two, th two things are interesting to note. One, uh, there hasn't been a president in our lifetimes and possibly this century who hasn't had articles of impeachment filed against them. Right. Um, now, most of those, uh, most of those uh, tactics were not taken very seriously. So sort of, uh, a fringe senator or representative from the other party um, showing their displeasure with policies of the president by filing articles of impeachment. Right. On the other hand, um, I think uh, we should note that over the last couple of years, Google uh, Google searches on the word using the word impeachment have spiked dramatically, so impeachment is entering into the public discourse. How many of those were Garrett's this morning though? Trying yeah. to get uh, uh, just about half, half of them, half of them. <laughs> but uh, here's the thing to note: uh, 
it seems as though Republicans in the House and Senate in their re-election campaigns are talking more about impeachment than Democrats are, which is, but what's weird about it is it's the Republicans saying that Democrats are talking about impeachment. So they're talking about impeachment, accusing the other side of talking about impeachment. Um, What that suggests to me, and I'm curious what you think about this, Bramson, is that this idea that there's a perception within our candidates on both sides that the public isn't excited about impeachment. The public is turned off by that idea that sees it as a usurpation of, of democratic power. Right. And right. so both sides are trying to point the finger at the other side and say, you're talking about impeachment. You're the one, you're the ones bringing this up. Is that, is that overreaching? Well, I mean, no, I think it's, it's a fair point. I think there's a real distinction between what the democratic base is doing. So the, the kind of liberal voters in the Democratic Party and then the Democratic Party establishment, which I think doesn't want to touch this for very good reasons right now, which is that they can't do anything about it, right? I mean, they're in the minority in the House, they're in the minority in the Senate. Um, They have no chance of getting this through, right? So if they gain the majority in the House, they could actually push through articles of impeachment. But then unless they can get a number of Republicans to jump on board, um, then that would be, you know, it would be impossible to get through the Senate, right? Um, Unless the Republicans turn on their own president. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that is accurate. And I think it's accurate, too, to say that we're uncomfortable with this idea of impeachment precisely because we have set the bar so high, right? We said, unless we, I mean, if the president committed treason with the Russians, right, then we might say, okay, fine, um, then he could be impeached. But short of that, right, I think a lot of people are really leery. Um, and this gets back to the question we discussed earlier, which is, did we set the bar, have we historically set the bar too high? I would suggest yeah. we probably have, but I don't know that we can walk away from that now. We're talking about 230 years of history. Can we, can we sneak one more question in here? Yep, for sure. Okay, um, and, and this, I'm actually interested uh, in uh, Professor Bramson talking about this, thinking about if this doesn't exist here, does this exist in other forms of democratic government? Um, so how, do, how does any of the checks and balances hold merit if everyone who should check the powers in office are scared of not being reelected? Moreover, shouldn't that responsibility be given to persons independent of political ties? Is there, are there any places where decisions of impeachment would be, I mean, you talked about how they rejected the Supreme mm-hmm. Court as, um, as a way to do this. Presumably those people wouldn't, they were, they're not facing re-election at least, right. so they would be right. more independent of that. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> there are ways of doing this. Um, they're usually not very constitutional, right? So, I mean, like you can think about, you know, there are places where you have go- powers outside of the government who can check the power of the government. Like um, the military, like the for military, example. Like the military, right? Um, or you can think of the Ayatollah in Iran, things like that, right? But those are not usually constitutional or what we would consider democratic constitutional kind of functions. Um, I think the answer comes back to us as, as the citizens of the country, right? I mean, if we want it, if we decide we don't support the president anymore, then that's when members of parliament or members of Congress in our case are willing to act, right? They're willing to say, mm-hmm. we should remove the president and we should do it for our, for our reelection benefit, right? And so, I mean, when we've been talking about, you know, President Trump obviously has come up a lot in the news with a number of controversies. People wonder about his chances of getting impeached. And I think, to me, the biggest answer is what, what would lead to Trump's impeachment? It's not really a legal issue. It's not a new scandal. There are lots of scandals out there. You can make a case for it now. You can make a case against it now, right? What really would be a big issue is if his support plummets, right? If it gets so low, the Republicans decide sticking with him is more expensive than sticking, uh, standing against him, right? And, um, and that's where he's not right now. I mean, high 30s is nowhere close to that. He probably has to drop at least 10 points, I would say, um, somewhere into the 20s. If he got down there, right, then Republicans might say, you know what, Mike Pence looks pretty good, um, and jettisoning the president is probably our safer electoral bet. So it's really about us. I mean, if, if we stick with him, then, you know, as, uh, not, not necessarily you particularly, right, but enough of his supporters, mm-hmm. um, then he's likely safe. Our polling is better now than it was in the 1970s, but uh, Donald Trump right now is at least twice as popular 
as Richard Nixon was when he resigned. Right. So about half of Trump's ardent supporters right now would have to abandon him before he reaches Nixonian levels of resignation. Not to say that there's an iron rule there or an iron yeah. number, but um, that's a useful benchmark. Yeah. So as a listener of uh, election check therapy, I like you guys like numbers and predictions. Can I ask you, uh, you know, look into your crystal ball. What are the this chances? This is Bethel. We don't have crystal balls. No, well, we not have Bethel here. Sorry, that's, that's Hogwarts. Okay, <laughs> that's right. right. That's What's Hogwarts. Yes. What's the Pietist equivalent of a crystal ball? Doesn't exist. Okay. No. Um, so what are, what are the chances? Is percentage that Donald Trump does not reach the end of his first term in office because he has been impeached and then convicted by the Senate? You know, I think I'm going to go almost zero on impeached and convicted. The, the chances of him not reaching the end of his first term are higher, obviously, right. but. Um, on impeaching convicted, almost zero, probably because if for no other reason than if you got to that point, you would assume Republicans would talk to him and you would assume a Nixonian kind of exit. Yeah. So. If, if, you, if you truncated that and made it not, not a two-part issue, right. impeachment and conviction, but just impeachment, I'd, I'd bump that up to maybe 5%. Yeah, I might even go higher than five um, because the, I mean I think the Democrats are very likely to take the House this mm -hmm. fall. The, the the you know things seem to be trending in their direction, and it could be the case that the the, the sort of um, grassroots of the party demands this yep. much the way that like you know Republicans kept trying to repeal Obamacare even though there was no hope of actually getting it passed, um, but they would do this in part to tell their base, look, we we did try to vote you know, to repeal and you know the president blocked it right, um, and so you know they they may well try try that with the House and Senate and just you know say look we tried we couldn't sorry. Right, so I would put it higher than five, but not. What, what would high. the what would the negative, um, if the if the House, if, let's say Democrats win the House, the House impeaches um, the president, and then he go the goes to the Senate, and he's not convicted. Right. What would the political fallout of something like that likely be? So that's exactly why I think it's low. Is I um, I think the Democrats are calculating enough on that issue that they won't go there. The Republicans suffered a, a, a rebound of of. Of, of uh, public antipathy after uh, impeaching and then not convicting Bill Clinton. And I think that's still fresh enough in the minds of Democratic leadership that they'll be wary of that for the same reasons with Donald Trump. On the other hand, they won the next presidential election. So that's true. So it wasn't Fair you know, point. A, terrible, a terrible impact. Uh, I think, gentlemen, we're at time. So thank you, those of you who, who, who joined us today. Thank you yes, for your questions. You. Yes. On behalf of my colleagues, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. As always, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'll be back in your, uh, in your uh, podcast feed next week. But until then, go Royals.